Hi, this is Pastor Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for joining our podcast. We're walking through the book of Luke, thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, to see the world the way he does, and to integrate his patterns into our life. I hope you enjoyed the sermon today. I also want to point you to the description section where you can find the church's website. We would love for you to visit our church and consider investing in our ministry. There's two other links. One is a podcast I do with a therapist at Renew Church, and we kick around issues like dating, mental health, and friendships. And lastly, there's a children's book series and a journal that I wrote with my wife and my mentor, and we'd love for you to look at those resources as well. Thank you so much for being a part of the Renew Church family, and I hope that you enjoyed the sermon today. God bless. I'm going to pray for us right before I show to you the next slide, a picture, a very vulnerable tweet that was tweeted about me 10 years ago. So let me pray for us real quick. We'll get started. Father, thank you so much um, for this church. Lord, thank you so much that we get to come and gather and we get to seek you. Lord, thank you for your word. I just pray that your Holy Spirit um, would just guide us into all understanding. Um, Lord, be with us through the rest of this day and um, would it glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I have an out-of-context tweet that's going to look pretty weird. Next slide. (laughs) I'm waiting for the gears to turn, gears to turn, gears to turn. And so here this tweet was tweeted about me about eight, no, ten years ago almost about, roughly about, and it was my roommate at the time. And when I think about culture, at the time, you probably don't remember 2014, but this is when there was like the craze of Juno, when it was teenage pregnancies, this is when 16 and pregnant was coming out, and now all the parents are starting to freak out, and they're starting to hyperventilate. This is when uh, the secret life of the American teen came out, all these different shows, and it kind of pedestaled teenage pregnancy in such a weird way. And so that's how the culture affected me. When we would sit around a dinner table with my family, we would sit around, and I would be about 9, 10, 12 years old, And my parents would say, Kevin, how many babies do you want to have one day? I said, Mom, I want to have more than you, at least five or six. And then my mom would go to my brother Danny and be like, how many are you going to have? And Danny would say, at least four or five. And so far, as she goes down all down the line, she says, I'm so blessed. I'm going to have 25 grandchildren. And this is just kind of what it was like at my family at the Leong household. We were just so jazzed about having children. We were so jazzed about this idea of finding the perfect person, the love of our life, the person that would um, fix all of our needs, that they would meet all of our demands, that they would always say yes to everything that we want, and that we would build this dream life together, right? And um, it almost sounds like I wish I went to um, Rika's love addiction uh, classes, but unfortunately, I don't know if that was around in 2014. Um, But I remember at the time of this tweet, I was just sitting in my dorm room freshman year, and I just blurted this out to my roommate, to which he put it on social media, and it blew up um, in our friend groups and things like that. And I kind of just became that guy that always talked about that. And this is before Christ, by the way, before Christ. And I would just tell people, like, I just wouldn't mind having a kid right now. Like, I'd love to be a father in all of my ignorance. And then I remember one day my roommate came into my room, and he's like, dude, Kevin, you got to check it out. There's this new app called Tinder. 
And I was like, what's Tinder, dude? What is Tinder? What is this? I've never heard of this. It's to light fires. What's his app? Um, and he says, you have access to all the single women within 50 miles of your radius. And me as a single college freshman, that was unheard of. And so I signed up, we made accounts, and we just swiped right about 400 times. We were just swiping right as we were just talking. We're just swiping right, we're just talking, we're doing the dishes, we're swiping right, we're eating, we're swiping right. We're not even looking at profiles at this point. It's just a numbers game. Um, And I think about this, uh, I think about this culture paradigm. I think about this culture that we live in. It It was fulfilling all the desires that I'd wanted. It was like this age of self-fulfillment. And it's funny that it's not too different than the culture that we live in today. I think many would argue it's only accentuated since that time. And so if I want to escape the workday, I can throw on Netflix with about two clicks of a button. If I'm craving sushi, I can have it delivered probably within 30 minutes at my doorstep. If uh, people don't text back within four to six hours, people are angry and grumpy because it's not immediately a reply. You know, and I think about how Amazon pretty much gives us access to every store in the country and nation with just two clicks. And this is just kind of the culture and age that we've just been soaking in. We've just been, we've just been marinating in this, that we have access to pretty much every craving, every itch, every um, desire can be satisfied almost instantaneously or immediately if we would desire Immediately, this is how uh, used to it that we've become, that this isn't even a novelty thought. And so we would never say no to ourselves. That's a big part of our culture that we live in. And we often also think of success as this idea of how much we can satisfy ourselves, how much we can continue to put away the bad feelings, the bad emotions, and continue to satisfy our desires. It's almost like life is meant to be like a stock chart where it's just a tick to the right and always trending upwards. That's how we all want to live our lives. And when I come across this passage in Luke 9, I think about how Jesus talks about how life should be lived differently, how he says actually quite the opposite. And so today we're going to be in 9, 21 through, uh, through 27. And the Bible says in verse 24 that for whoever wants to save their life, will actually lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. And so what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? And so what Jesus is actually saying here is a paradox. It's a paradoxical just phrase and sentence, but it's also a statement of reality. It's not like a wisdom statement. It's not like a what if. It's actually a statement of reality that this equals this, and so this will result in this. He's saying that if you love this world, if you find your ultimate pleasure in this world um, that you've made for yourself and you're clinging to it, you'll actually lose it all in the end, at the end of your life, at the very last breath. And that's as far as it goes. That's as far as, the, as your joy, as your pleasure, as your experience goes. That the greatest pleasure you'll ever experience is only what's at your fingertips It's only what you created for yourself. It's only what you made happen. But now Jesus flips that and says that if you lose your life for him, if you choose to live and die for Jesus, to follow after what he says and does, and to do that with him, you'll actually save your soul. 
And where the real irony is, is that you're actually living a longer and more full life in Jesus, that you're actually living eternally with him in a full, purposeful life filled with intention, that actually when we surrender our life to Jesus and lose it for him, we're gaining a more full life. And so what does Jesus model uh, in us in all of chapter 9? What he modeled was not self-gratification, but actually a life of, si- of self-denial. And we see this in his life and ministry. We see Jesus that he even just denied the comfort of his own home in heaven, that he took on flesh willingly and came to dwell with us, that he denied his own home and put on flesh fully to be fully man, fully God. That we see that Jesus denied physical safety, that when he was driving out demons, when he was calling out legion and having command over him, that the man um, possessed, his name was, the, the demons were named legion, was said to be able to break chains. And so Jesus was going as far to even deny his own physical safety. Jesus denied social status and his standing among his peers. When he touched and healed the sick, when he encountered those with leprosy, when he touched the blind and healed those that were hurting and sick, full well knowing that it was believed at this time that that person was to be cursed and that that curse could spread to another. He even denied time and resources, something that we're very familiar with. He denied time and resources to invest and teach disciples, that instead of putting the team on his back and doing a one-man show, that he actually invited them to participate and do part of the ministry with him, and that he would spend time to correct and teach them so that they would have relationship with them. And then Jesus models for us what true life looks like by denying ourselves to the point of the cross. In verse 22, he tells the disciples this, and Jesus says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. In this chapter, he's effectively turning to the crowds and the disciples and saying, I am God's Messiah. I am not a prophet. I am not Elijah, but I am God's Messiah. And if you want to follow me to true life, this is the path that I'm going on. This is where I'm headed. This is where the road ends. I'm, I'm forthcoming. I'm telling you everything up front that at the end, I will be killed and on the third day raised to life. I will be rejected by all. And so Jesus hides nothing from the disciples. He tells them the path will be self-denial before its reward. He tells them that it will be the cross before it's the throne. And he tells them that it will be death before it's resurrection. And that's what makes Jesus the greatest leader to ever live. He's honest. He's up front. He he puts his money where his mouth is. He essentially doesn't uh, doesn't ask anything that he doesn't do himself. He leads by example. And he forges this path for us to follow. And that's kind of the core essence of what a disciple is. That's a core essence of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, that we are students to a rabbi, that we study his teachings, that we follow his way as followers, and that we learn under his tutelage, and that we are disciples of a master. And so as disciples, this is what the master says is necessary to continue our discipleship to continue our apprenticeship to him. The scripture continues in verse 23. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple 
must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And so this is what Jesus says what it means to follow him. It's really a follow him sandwich. He's really saying, if you want to be my disciple, aka following me, do these things. Deny yourself and what? Take up your cross and then follow me again. And so to, de to deny yourself is literally to say no. It's like, it's like essentially like your dog at the table. It's to decline them, scraps at the food table. It's to completely say no. It's like if your credit card is maxed out, it's just denied, it's declined. It's to dismiss the request. And so denying for ourselves is literally to say no to the things that you desire. It's declining what your inner world seeks and wants for personal gain. This is your desires. This is your appetite for self-promotion. This is your, maybe your yearning to be seen or adored. This is maybe your wanting to be elevated among your peers. This is maybe saying no to the addictions in your life or the things that you rely on for comfort, comfort the things that you go to for safety after a bad day. And maybe we don't always think of these things in these, categ in these categories or at least verbalize them. But we all have things that we lean on. We lean on things to get by day and day throughout the weeks. When we've had an argument with our spouse, how easy it is to turn to pornography or to lust. When we're filled with stress from the work-life balance that we turn to excessive gaming or binge-watching Netflix or excessive electronics, and before we know it, it's 3 a.m. And maybe for some others, we're just tired of feeling lonely on the weekends. And so then we turn to Hinge or Tinder or clubbing or drinking on the weekends. And maybe for some others, when we're feeling insecure about ourselves, we're turning to Instagram or to social media to post likes, maybe an ingenious thought, maybe a beautiful picture to be well-liked or well-received. Whatever it is that we do or that we lean on, what we're essentially doing, what we're essentially communicating is that our security, our comfort, all of it is in our own hands. We're essentially saying that we have control of what we want to feel and when we want to feel it, and we have the control of what comes in and out and how we want our lives to be ruled. And that our life is, is in our control. And so we get to determine, we get to call the shots, we get to rule it. And what we do is we consume and we consume depending on what our need is for that day, and we end up tuning out the Lord we end up missing what his voice sounds like. And instead of denying ourselves, we've actually chosen ourselves. You know, a couple weeks ago, I made um, my phone a dumb phone. Um, and so Derek Wu, I don't know if he's here, he might be in next service, but he has all my passcodes to it. So if I'm ever missing money, um, it's on him. And, and essentially why I did this is I did it to check my lust. I did to check my lust, I did to check my excessive gaming, on my phone, and I did it to check my cynicism and my comparison that I feel on social media. And I just did it when I just looked at my pure screen time of how many hours I was putting away on my devices. Um, so effectively now, my phone can only do alarm, calendar, um, texting, and Bible app. So all the core essentials. It's a, it's a pure tool. It's a pure tool for me to get throughout the day. And But the crazy part when I was thinking about my phone addiction 
is that even though my screen time hours has gone significantly down, it was like four hours a day down, now it's down to like one and a half or two. Um, the crazy part is that that's gone down. Did you know that it also tracks how many times you pick up your phone? Does anyone know that? Does anyone realize that? It's a crazy statistic. They know everything. And so the crazy thing is, is that my statistics for how many times I pick up my phone has not changed. It's still almost 140 times a day. Almost 140 times. I encourage you to go and look at your own how many. And what this tells me is that I'm picking up my phone like it's a muscle memory. That even though I know it has no content on it, it has nothing there that would be entertaining whatsoever. Uh, I try to make the most entertaining thing uh, my Bible app. And, and even though it has no entertaining things about it, I'm still picking it up. And that's when I realized it was an addiction for me. And so I still cannot, even, even though I can't access internet or open up links or use the QR code, uh, I've noticed that I've been getting a lot of people coming up to me and saying, man, why don't, you just, um, why don't you just delete the app and just keep it the same? Why don't you just put your phone on the other side of the room and just plug it into the wall and leave it? And I wish it was that easy, but that's just not how addiction works. That's just not how um, our crutches work. And this is the reality of when we, of when, uh, we deny ourselves. It can feel like we're taking steps backwards in our life. It can feel like, to others, it doesn't make much sense. It can sometimes feel like loneliness when we deny ourselves. It can feel frustrating to feel powerless at times. It's almost as if we can feel and miss the experience that we had when we were just indulging and indulging and indulging and self-gratifying. But I remember what Roy Kim, um, our licensed therapist, said when it comes to addictions. That when we cut ties with our addictions, with our crutches, it can feel like we're saying goodbye to a close friend. That our addictions were like this close friend that got us through a lot of those hard and lonely nights, um, a lot of those emotional seasons. And it was always there when we needed it. And now it's not there. Now it's gone. But the good news is that the Bible tells us that it's, it's when we move towards self-denial that we actually move towards Jesus. And now being, uh, instead of being left to our own uh, vices and our own things, Jesus becomes what we lean on. Jesus becomes our rock. He becomes our crutch and our, and our redeemer and the good soil that we stand on. He's who we lean on. And so effectively, he becomes now our greatest source of comfort and security. And it's in this process of growing closer to Jesus um, that we take steps moving from self-reliance to God-reliance. And it's when we rely on Jesus, when we are his di- disciple that is so close in proximity to him, so close relationally, so close emotionally, so close spiritually, that we begin to see his voice and, and have more clarity, that we have room to hear it more, that we have bandwidth um, in our emotional bank, in our, in our even just attention span, to devote to Jesus wholly. And so it's in this space of discipleship and nearness to Jesus that he's able to develop our character, that he's able to develop things in, this, in our relationship to him, like patience, like goodness, like kindness, uh, becoming more like him. And it's in this space of nearness to Jesus that he's giving us hope each day. He's giving us new mercies. 
And it's this gift of peace that he promises. Jesus goes on to say in verse 23 that to be my disciple, there's a second condition. And the verse says that whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. What Jesus otherwise says is that we aren't occasionally called to do this, but we are called to follow this in entirety, in the entire way, fully through, that this is a way of life, and we do this daily. The Greek use of this verse is, is it's completely the verbiage and usage of it is in uh, the present active form. And its use of it is in this customary and habitual use, meaning that Jesus is saying this isn't a one-time thing like, hey, I denied myself last week. I'm pretty good for the month. I denied myself on Christmas or on Easter, or I picked up my cross um, down during Christmas, and I'm good. But it's this idea that this is happening at all times, that there's never not a moment that this isn't to be happening as disciples of Jesus. That as we go about our lives and we encounter difficulties or um, we encounter our relationship strains or whatever it may be, desires or wants, that we are to submit these and lay these before Jesus and, to, and pick up our cross. It's a life thing. The interesting thing about this is that how we kind of perceive cross is, 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 is slightly different than ancient times. You know, maybe in today's time, when we think of a cross, it's maybe, it's maybe not so negative. There's a feeling of empathy. There's a feeling of it's become a, even a fashion accessory. It's become a logo. It's become something that's planted in, outside of a church. It's something that we add to things and content. And it's also, of course, in its true meaning. But for the disciples in this time, when they heard cross, they definitely knew what this meant, that there was a direct understanding that this was a symbol of death, that the cross was effectively like an electric chair, if I were to bring it into layman's terms. But the cross was capital punishment, and it was the most shameful way to die at this time. And so to bring up the cross and to consider the cross, it was reserved for the worst of the worst in their time. It was reserved for the scum of the earth to be stripped naked, to be hanging on a tree or on a cross, to be crucified, and to be out in the open as a public display to all the people to not only savagely slander the person, to, to spit on them, to ridicule them, to mock them, but also as an example as, as to say, this is what happens when you do the worst of the worst. This is what you get. And so when the disciples heard Jesus say, pick up your cross, they knew what this meant. They knew that this meant utter and complete allegiance to Jesus, that he was asking for their complete lives. Everything that they found security in, everything that they found value in is, is surrendered to Jesus and, and to death's end from, from their breath now to their last breath. Thankfully for us in our own context, crucifixion and death isn't a, um, isn't a thing that we always think about in our Western context outside of our door. But I believe the ask is still similar, that Jesus is asking still today, that if our allegiance would still carry us all the way till death. And so if we're being honest, um, not all of us here might not quite be at that point. Not all of us feel like, hey, I could get to that point and die that kind of death for Jesus today. 
you know, on the next slide, during the 1100s, um, there was this thing called um, the Knights Templar. It's a really cool name. They're really cool. They'd be really fun to play in a video game. But they are real, and they're from the Crusades. And during the Crusades, they essentially instituted this holy military order. They're pretty much, um, they're pretty much like weaponized monks. They're essentially like warrior monks. And what they're instructed to do was to protect the Holy Land and guard people that come to and from religious sites. What's so fascinating about this is that to be a part of the Knights Templar during this time is that you'd have to get baptized. And so what they would do is, is that they would uh, take their armor, they'd be wearing their full armor uh, to represent the armor of God as they would claim it. But when they get into the water, when they were about to be baptized, as they were about to represent uh, their decision in Christ, surrendering their whole life to him, what they actually did is each one of them would hold their sword above the water. It's a very fascinating thing that, they, that when they, they believed that when they held their sword above water, that they were in their right minds able to still continue to, to commit violence and kill and slaughter and murder uh, because they didn't baptize it with them. And it's almost as if to say, God, I surrender my life to you, except this part. I baptize this part of my life, but my violence and my anger, like you're, I'm not baptizing that part, God. I'm not going to baptize that part. I'm not going to surrender and give that part to you. And we kind of laugh at this, and we kind of think how ridiculous this is. We're like, who would ever not put their sword under there? Or how could they think they could just go on killing and slaughtering innocent lives um, and, and think that it doesn't count? Um, but if we're being honest, I actually kind of admire their honesty. And I think um, we hardly carry around swords these days. But if, we, if our church was to do honest baptisms, that if we were to be honest with ourselves, some of us might get baptized in the water, but we might be holding our wallets out of the water in one arm. We might be holding a picture of our girlfriend or our boyfriend. We might be holding our career path and our plans. Or we might be holding an ideal image of ourselves that we've always dreamed of. And so my question for you is what item are you holding above the water? What's your sword that needs to be baptized? What part of your life do you not want to surrender or give to Jesus? For me, when we found out um, that Kimberly was pregnant, um, it was actually the day after Mother's Day, and Kimberly had a dream that she was pregnant, and then she wakes me up at like 7 a.m., and she says, I need to take a test. I was like, what? This is an amazing dream. I'm so excited. I'm ready for a surprise. And I'm groggy, and I'm waking up, and that test flips over to positive. And out of nowhere, just all these emotions just come flooding and hitting me, realizing that this was my 18-year-old dream, that this was my dream to have a family and to have a child of my own. And prior to this, Kimberly and I had a degree of complications, and here we are, uh, a few months staring at our future. And so that night, I just stayed up in my bed. I, I didn't have quite the same, even my own friends said I didn't have quite the same joy that they would have expected me to have. And I just remember staying in my bed up until 2, 3 a.m., just scrolling, looking up statistics. Kimberly was about five weeks pregnant at that time, and I was just feeling so dissatisfied, just looking for a different um, article that would give me a higher percentage than like 68 or 70. Because um, when I saw that, I always just saw 30% or 
And it just really felt like when I was thinking of Kaya, her name's Kaya, um, and she's going to be born in a few months. Um, when I think about um, Kaya at that moment, she was just a little baby clump of cells. And I just remember feeling like that was my trust and faith in Jesus at that time, that it was just this tiny clump of cells. It was something, but it felt like with each week going by that Kaya grew bigger, that's when I would trust Jesus more with her that that's when I would trust Jesus more and, uh, and worship him more, that it felt like it was a conditional thing tied to me getting Kaya. One day I just got this vision of me worshiping God. It's one that I got back um, when I was coming into faith with Jesus almost 10 years prior. But I got this vision the next week of me worshiping God, and I'm in the throne room, and I'm just on my knees um, with a hard heart. Like I just do not feel close to him. And I just remember in, in this vision that I was getting or what I was imagining here uh, that I believe was a gift from the Lord that I was laying down my right hand and on my right hand, it was saying, give me Kaya on my wrist. And I was laying that down on my knees. And then when I put down my left hand, it would say, then I will worship you forever. It was this idea that my, my worship was tied wholly to me getting Kaya and it wasn't until retreat that when I was talking with Wilson at like 3 a.m., um, he shared with me about this moment where he had almost thought he had lost Levi to uh, a, 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 re a reckless driver and how he was still learning to trust God in those same moments too. That even though that he's still many years ahead, he's still learning to trust God with his children as well too. And so what God was asking me in that moment was God was asking me to lay down both hands whether my desires were good ones or not. God wanted me to trust him regardless if I get Kaya or not. That in denying myself even my greatest desire, my greatest pleasure, my greatest dream that I've had, meant that I get to say yes and fully rely on Jesus. And even now as Kimberly is seven months pregnant, that when I feel weak, he's my greatest comfort. And when I feel uncertain of the future, he's my total security. And so just how we follow Jesus into self-denial and following his footsteps, just like he denied himself in cross-bearing, we follow Jesus in his resurrection and life. And that's the best part, that after losing our lives for him, we get to effectively have Jesus forevermore. That's the gift in how this ends of discipleship, that as we deny ourselves and as we take up our cross, that in the end, we have resurrection with Jesus that it's saved because Jesus saves, and that we are resurrected because Jesus resurrects. And so at the end, we get resurrection in Jesus. That's the best part. But the win in that resurrection is that we reorder our lives and our desires in him, that we get to experience resurrection in all the places that Jesus invites us into. And that's because of the, re the resurrection and the peace that Jesus provides, that it actually allows me to be a better father, a better father for Kaya, that I get to experience resurrection each day with Kaya now, that I get to cherish the days that he's given me, and that I'm also able to know that she's in much better hands, even, even if I think my hands are the best on this earth, that, he's, that she's actually even in greater hands, hands that will provide for her, much beyond my days, hands that, that love her, hands um, that will hold her from beginning to the end. 
And so Jesus lets us experience resurrection in each of our lives. He frees us from the pressure of of finances and allows us to order our lives around him and trust him with the rest. We can see our resurrection in the workplace where, which was once just a place where we just make a paycheck, it can now have new dreams and new vision and new desires in God. We can have new life in our relationship statuses that instead of searching for the one and constantly searching and going on dates or whatever it may be, that we can take comfort in the greatest relationship that we've ever received and that we don't need to search as much because we already have enough. And that we can also experience resurrection in our marriages by granting us his peace and his presence that allows us to trust God and know that he's leading our families, that he's going before us and that he is covering us in our homes and it's not on us. This is the resurrection that we get to experience that's at the end of discipleship with Jesus. And I just want to invite us into that, into Sunday, into today, into our Sabbath day, that when Jesus says to take up your cross daily, that means today. And when he says to deny yourselves daily, that means for us today and now. And so would you bow your heads and join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you that you have gone before us, Lord. We're so thankful that we are not searching down caves by ourselves or guessing which way to go, but Lord, you have said that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that we are to follow you. And so, Lord, I just pray that as disciples of you, Lord, that we would grow and think thoughtfully to examine and search our hearts, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be revealing to us the things that you've called us to put to death, Lord, the things that you've called us to deny so that we may have greater life in you. And God, I just pray that we could experience that resurrection that you have promised us, Lord, that we could see it on this side of heaven in our relationships and in our families and in all the places that you've called us to. But it starts with picking up our cross. And so, Lord, thank you um, that we know our portion. It's you, and this is what you've called us to. Help us to do that well. Help us to do that holding your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're really grateful that you'd spend time listening to the sermon series. And we also wanted to point you to a few other resources. My wife and I wrote a children's book collection, Helping Kids, bridge their faith with God's calling in their life as a businessman, as a doctor or nurse, and as a creative. Secondly, we wrote an adulting journal, which helps young adults think through this transition into adulthood, whether it's transitions in friendship, family, faith, or calling. And lastly, I want to point to a podcast that myself and another church member, Roy Kim, who's a therapist, co-host together. It's called The Same Boat. We talk about relationships. We just finished um, a series on dating. We think back to an English ministry church. And we just tackle all kinds of topics that are relevant to our life. I hope that uh, those resources enrich your life as well. And lastly, if you're looking to partner with us, on our website, we have a give section. You could give to our general fund and continue to serve our church through, um, through partnering with us financially. But if you scroll down, we have 
quite a few local missionaries that have called Renew home. If you read their bio, there's also a section to give to each one of our local missionaries. We hope that all of them would be fully funded going into this year. God bless you. Thanks so much for being with us and uh, hope to hear, hope to uh, have you join us again.